0: You're listening to Small But Mighty, the podcast of the Small Nonprofits Alliance, the online hub for Australia's small charities. Hey everyone, I'm Bianca Crocker, the founder of the Small Nonprofits Alliance, and today with me, I'm so excited to be speaking with Mr. Sean Gordon, who is involved with an organisation, Um, called School Aid, and that's what we'll be talking with him about today. Hello, Sean.
1: Hello there, Bianca. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for your time today and chatting with me on our podcast.
1: Pleasure. Looking forward to it. It's the first one for me, actually. (laughs)
0: Um, What does being a small but mighty organisation mean to you?
1: (laughs) Quite a bit, I guess, small but mighty. I guess the word but says a lot. You know, it sort of says small but okay in my mind. I'm okay being small if there's a butt in there. Sort of suggests someone punching above their weight and succeeding. I reckon. So, um, I guess if I think of small but mighty, it bring It makes me think of David and Goliath. You know, um, if Goliath yeah. for me would be the big the big thing we're trying to fight, which is youth anxiety, depression, and suicide. It's what we're on about at School Aid. And if school I were to be David, then I think David would be the sling would be the team I've got, and the teachers and the students and the partners and the leaders and so forth, young leaders, and and our rock would be philanthropy. That's what we use to try and combat anxiety, depression, and suicide. So small and mighty, I've got the big, the big thing, and it's actually getting worse youth, anxiety, depression, and suicide. So you know, we are a David, and we're one of many out there fighting the good fight. So small and mighty, not a bad, not a bad way to think about it, actually.
0: Yeah, fabulous. Thanks for that analogy. That's great. Uh, What
1: would be your – yeah, go on. It just made me think, because like when we say we're we're on about trying to do do something about it, I guess I didn't spell it out, but we believe that when you give, you receive. So in helping others, you know, you change your perspective about things. Um, It gives Mm. you a sense of well-being. It gives you a sense of gratitude. And I reckon those feelings are the sort of thing that will knock out the mental health delight that is – um, that is anxiety, depression, and suicide. You know, gratitude yeah. and so so people giving, and that's what we do at school. We use giving as a tool to help people feel better about themselves and the world, and reframe it. And it's
0: quite powerful. Yeah, definitely. And I think if you look into, I know from from where I sit, you know, in the fundraising space, when you look in the psych into the psychology of giving and and those sorts of things, there's so much research around feelings of well being and happiness that comes from from giving philanthropically so that would actually make a lot of sense really because it i think you know even when you're in a bad or a tough situation you can often find someone else in a worse situation or you know something else that's definitely makes you feel a little bit happier about your situation so being able to support you know other organizations or someone going through a crisis or you know voiceless animals or whatever it might be that you're supporting really does enable you to feel a part of a bigger community and part of a solution, which in itself gives feelings of, you know, gratitude and well-being, Cause you feel like you're actually being able to make a difference yourself on whatever small, you know, way that might be. It doesn't have to be tens of thousands of dollars.
1: No, no, often it's just time or talent. It's not always about money even, but you're That's dead right. Tragic. And the research is quite clear on this. People who give do get. They do feel better. They do feel happier. Mm. And when I coach adults, um, you know, I, I usually give them a, my clients a book, a gratitude book to fill in each day. Mm. And I argue that, um, you know, the negativity can't coexist with gratitude. It's just it just us. The two can't live in the same place. So it's, it's a good way to reframe your world just to have a look at yeah. how good things can be and how lucky we really are and put things in perspective. And sometimes we get a little bit... Um, we get a little bit too over-concerned about our little issues um, when compared to the real stuff that's going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, What would be your best piece of advice to help others on their journey of being small but mighty in the non-profit space?
1: i probably have two. You know, I think the number one thing would be to involve others and to empower them to really own and really participate meaningfully in your dream, your organisation, so, you know, so leveraging their wisdom and their energy. Because if you try and do something on your own, you're going to struggle. But if you have other people in and you have a mastermind or a board or a group or, you know, the more people around it, the better. But that does mean you can't be a founder or a, someone in the middle who has to own every single thing and you can't let other people contribute meaningfully. So it's probably like a kid that's being born. It might be your little idea that you've given birth to. But as it grows up, it has to be impacted on by all the other people who come to its life. And you know, its peers and other significant adults and so forth. And it, it takes its own life on, and I think that lets something grow and mature. And the other one I think is it's critical to have an inspired vision, you know. Yeah. My coaching with executive teams, I so often uncover um, really weak vision if they have one at all, and sometimes there isn't one. It's just making money, just keeping the thing going over the way we always have, and even uninspired goals. that You don't create any desire where the places I see and some of the ones I've worked with, I think, get to a place where they have an inspired vision and that calls people to act and they want to walk over cut glass to deliver on that vision where they feel a part of it.
0: Mm.
1: And I could give you a quick example. Yeah, sure. It's a bit of a story, but you'll get what I'm saying. I often get people to, to tell, I often explain to people about my London story, which is, if you asked me now if I could pop across to London in six weeks from now and stay for six months, I'd say, Bianca, you've got rocks in your head. You know, I've got a startup business, I've got a charity I'm running, I've got my coaching clients and so it's an Absolutely ridiculous proposition. I can't go to London. It's too expensive in too many ways. Certainly not in six weeks, and I definitely couldn't stay for six months. But if you change the question a bit and, and caused a different vision for me, a different reason for me to want to be there, everything shifts. So if you said mm-hmm. to me, Hey Sean, Look, your daughter um, your daughter's actually unwell and the prognosis is not good. In fact, the only treatment in the world that's available is in London and she needs to begin it within six months or she will not make it. Furthermore, you need to be there because it's a biological type of treatment. They need Your, your body has to be there as well in order to contribute to the process. That will take a full six months. Mm. I can tell you as stupid as taking myself off to London in six weeks from now is I will ring you from London in six weeks and tell you how I did it
0: yeah
1: you know that level of vision that level of compelling reason will change everything and i'll it will it will take me all day every day i'll be thinking about how to make that happen yeah so that's what we need yeah that's an organization needs a compelling and inspired vision people can say yeah i can dial into that i'll think about that one in the shower you know that will actually inspire me every day to get out of bed and get on with it
0: yeah Absolutely, that's a fabulous. bit. Be- Both of those um, pieces of advice you give about, you know, imp- empowering others to join your journey, and and but, but definitely the critical to have an inspired vision is a is a um, is a really poignant point. Thank you so much for that, Sean, You've spent many years as a primary school teacher and a principal, and you were also honoured with a life membership of the Australian Primary Principals Association before more recently moving into coaching school executive teams and businesses about positive mindset, high-performing cultures, and so much more. How did your background in education lead you into establishing School Aid, the non-profit um, that I think has been around for 20 years now? Is that right?
1: Yeah, no, we have. we turned 21 this year, actually. So we've, um, we've had some interesting ups and downs, but we're here and we're going well and we've had some terrific impact. What I can say, I guess in terms of my educational background, many years, like over 20 years in teaching and 18 of those as a principal, helped to form my philosophy of education. And, and without a dissertation on that, I'd say there's two key little quotes that spell it out. One was um, making a difference between or differentiating between education and schooling. And Mark Twain had a terrific quote that went along the lines of, I never let my schooling get in the way of my education. Hmm. And I love that because education is about living life, not just knowing stuff. And another one was John Ruskin who said, education does not mean teaching people what they do not know. It means teaching them to behave as they do not behave. And Mm. you see with businesses that I coach, with individuals, with students, i found that all of our results, and I don't care what they're in, all of our results come from what we do, not what we know. And I know people who've got more degrees than a thermometer, but they're not having a successful life. You know, they're, they're not doing what they want to do. They're not on purpose. They're not on passion. But they know a lot of stuff. Yeah. And so education for me is about what you do and getting in alignment, having a purpose in life and so forth. And so that was pretty critical for me, that philosophy at least. And so when I was in my one two, third school as a principal, and it was back in 1999. There was a boy called Brendan and I walking around the school one day, and he was in year five down in Vigo where the bushfires were recently. Um, and I was just walking along into the office with a little box full of stuff and I made a casual comment to him. I just said, mate, a question of him. I said, mate, where do you reckon you'll be when you're 25? And he said, oh, gee, Mr Gordon, I don't think we'll be here. And I said, why? Are you? What are you leaving? And he said, no, no, I just don't think any of us will be here. And I said, hang on, what do you mean? And he said, "I think we're going to kill each other." This is back in the time of Armageddon. You've got to get that. But I was yeah. stunned, and I sort of made a bit of a joke and looked at the window. And I said, "Come on, mate, we're living in Vega. Have a look out here. We've got beautiful sunshine, green grass, you know, happy cows, nice cheese." <laughs> yeah. It didn't cut it. And so, on further investigation, I discovered that he was being a victim, like so many other kids, of the media and the imagery that he was seeing in living colour in his lounge room at six o'clock with his family and now through social media, it's even worse, um, of a world that's pretty ordinary and where he didn't see much future for himself or anybody else. That completely and utterly blew my socks off. So I'm there as a principal. I was a father. I was on the National Executive for school principals for Professional Development. You know, I was chairing a group in New South Wales and Canberra. And I remember going to my teachers a few days later and saying to them, what's the point of teaching our children maths and science and English? If they see no hope for the future, mm. and so that's where School Aid started. I was sitting back there trying to work out what could we do, you know, what could I do in my little corner of the world to help Brendan and my own family and other people's kids feel better and think there is a great world because you know what the, I, as we said to the kids back then, I didn't know anyone had been robbed, anyone had been hard done by. Like it was life was so good and we're living in one of the best countries in the world. Mm. And my investigations uncovered the fact that Australia, the lucky country, had one of the highest youth suicide rates on the planet, despite how lucky we are, despite how I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. So not many people were talking about mental health back then, but as I dug around, I found, yeah, that we had significant issues of anxiety, depression and suicide at, at levels that were just completely and utterly unacceptable. And so it took a while and it's too long a story for today, but I came up with the notion that if we get people involved in giving, and in philanthropy, um, particularly, that is giving, of course, um, they felt better about themselves and they got a sense of perspective about the world and their place in it and the scale of their problems. And so without a lecture, without a poke in the chest, we get kids involved in helping someone else and by default they realise how lucky they are. Whether Mm -hmm. it's going down to a breakfast place where homeless people are being fed, whether it was going to a hospital ward and visiting sick people or whether it was helping people in a third world country and just seeing that they had one bowl of rice for the day. We didn't need to lecture them. They just got it. They'd say, Wow, you know, someone yeah. a big in, yeah. in that sort of mind. So it helps reframe their world. And then for me it was all about hope. In the absence of hope, there's not much point. So school. So aid the philanthropic
0: born. Yeah, so the philanthropic sort of aspect of school aid and, and getting, you know, young people involved in giving and philanthropy was was not the initial intention of the organisation. The initial intention was about how can we restore hope in these lucky Australian kids when they don't have any and that mental health and suicide and all those sorts of things are, are so high. So then the philanthropy and the giving was the solution rather than the actual intention. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely correct. A lot of people don't get that. They see Mm. school, they go to our crowdfunding platform or they join in one of our campaigns for what we're trying to raise money for and they think they're just another organisation, great organisation, raising money to help the victims. And I say right there, now if you think that, you've got it completely wrong. Mm. I'm chuffed that we're helping the victims, absolutely chuffed about that because we need to. But the reason we do it was for our kids as givers so that that restores hope for them. So they feel yeah. hopeful, optimistic, forward-looking, and hopefully when they grow up they become successful and well-adjusted, contributing adult members of society. In fact, I think we should judge the, the success of our school or education enterprise by how many philanthropists we've got who are 20, 30, and 40 rather than yeah. by ATAR and Year uh, and 12 scores because then they're doing stuff, you know. So if yeah. you're a philanthropist at 25 or 30, by definition you've got enough to give some of your access to other people. Or you've decided you can live comfortably on what you have and still contribute. I would yep. call that success. And then you, might, you know, typically philanthropists are well-adjusted and, and they're part of society. That's what yeah. I think should deliver. Kids come to our yep. schools. I think they should go out the other side as well-adjusted, contributing adult members of society.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we're. I about that. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I must be honest. I think I had a little bit. Like I understood the mental health element of what you do, but I didn't. I, I. I did have it backwards in terms of I thought the improved mental health and wellbeing outcomes was a byproduct of the other. You know, I thought it was around the other way. Which no, I thanks. mean, either way, it's still two great outcomes. You know, but the intention um, is obviously qu- quite the opposite of how I and as you said, many people do think. Which just makes it probably in my in my mind all the more remarkable, actually.
1: Yeah, thank um, you. A lot of people don't get that, and I appreciate you labouring on the distinction because it's critical. If we were just giving money to help victims, which I think is what we should do, it's we need to help out. That's what society. That's what a civilized society does. You help your poor. Yeah. However, if we just did that, I wouldn't bother because I don't see school aid growing into an organisation that has people and arms and legs on the ground delivering all of the aid. Yeah. The process of giving as a restorative activity, as a philanthropic, as a as an entrepreneurial activity. In fact, so children engage in fundraising, they engage in problem solving, they engage in community, they engage in conversation, and then they raise funds and they do you know marketing there, and then they deliver something and they get that terrific feeling that we all get, which I call inreach, school A people call it in reach, which is the benefit of being involved in outreach. And if yeah. that happens, those kids walk taller, they are empowered, they feel better about the world and their place in it, and they know they can make a difference. Usually, those kids and our our observations over twenty years now would say they don't need Prozac. They're not likely to jump under a bus. They are empowered to make the world a better place, and that's what's going. Otherwise, we'd shut shop and just say, "Look, send your money off to the myriad fabulous other organisations that are involved in outreach. We're involved in outreach."
0: Yeah, that's yeah, that's remarkable. It's yeah. So I noticed on your. Website and in your collateral and stuff, you talk about having worked with over six and a half thousand schools, and you've raised over, you know, worked with those schools to raise over five million dollars for charities in Australia and overseas over the time that you've been operating School Aid. So that's obviously the philanthropic outcome. But do you do you track or have you looked at any of the social impact around the well-being of the Australian kids and students involved in your programs?
1: Look, we don't have the capacity, sadly, to get as much research to much of the data as we'd like. We have yeah. um, we've truckloads of anecdotal evidence. Um, we had some people from Macquarie University helping us a few years ago with gathering information and doing pre- and post-testing, you know, sort of conversations with students. Yeah. Uh, what we know from talking to teachers and parents who have been involved with us is, and we have an annual, we've got a, a, one, of our pro- one of our many programs, but we have a boardroom leadership program for young primary leaders and we take them to corporate boardrooms and we talk about how they can make the world a better place over a period of two years, and they they meet four times a year. Uh, At the end of that year, each year we have a debrief with the kids and they universally say how fantastic it's been for them and their parents universally say, my child walks differently. Yeah. Knows they can make a difference. So we know it works, but we are right now, and I've been speaking with the National uh, Mental Health Commission in Canberra, and they are helping us with... um, at least they're proposing to help us with some research funding, um, so we can so we can actually have more rigor around pre yeah. and understanding the actual impact. Um, you know, with with that sort of yeah. academic rigor that we can then
0: yeah, that's fabulous. More. it's sometimes tricky because. From you know funders or government or just your general supporters, people are more interested today, I think, than perhaps ever before in the nonprofit space, around what's your impact, what's your impact, which is which is good because there's really no point in doing anything, you know, over and over if you're not actually making a difference. You need to do something differently. But I, but as much as I think hard data quantitative data is great i think anecdotal data can sometimes be really good because you can go deep like you might have like you said you've got lots of anecdotal data so you may have a story about little tommy and this was his story you know what i mean and you can tell a little story about lucy or you know or muhammad or whoever and you don't have the hard figures and numbers necessarily but it's actually you're knowing things are making a difference because you've got individual stories about people that their lives have been shaken up in the positive by it's doing it.
1: That's true. true. We, can, we do have those stories and we do know it. And and frankly, from the very outset, uh, we were being supported by the Australian Primary Principals Association and then subsequently the Australian Secondary Principal Association. So that's the peak body professionally for all schools, in the, or peak bodies, primary and secondary for all schools in the country. They, I think the leaders there know that what we're doing makes a difference. They know that stuff, you know, as, as educational leaders, and they've been with us for the 20 years and financial contributors as well. But, yeah. you know, it just doesn't cut it anyway because you can live in the land of delusion if you say, look, I've seen this and I know my program does that. But we, are, I think it's time. We actually need to have hard data as well to back yeah. up, which we're pretty certain about. So we're looking forward to that, and I think that will help us with other partnerships and commercial arrangements and so forth. Um but also, it'll help us identify more clearly what is really working most effectively, and we can duplicate that and amplify that, and hopefully have a greater impact nationally and then internationally on the scourge, which is youth mental health. Because yeah. we're living in such a great time. We're living yeah. one of the best countries in the world. It's, you know, we've never been safer. We've got, we've got uh, extreme poverty has been almost almost gone. Still poverty, but extreme poverty is almost gone. We've yeah. never lived longer. Do you know, kids have never yeah. been safer. Despite. Yeah. Them- um and the irony is so they uh, should be happy and
0: yeah there should more children should be living happier lives being hopeful about their future not not uh feeling dismayed and yeah worried yeah and so the schools that you work with um i know you've talked about primary schools so how young are some of the kids that that you're working with in these programs and and what sort of ways do you get them involved? You know, like you said, you don't have to lecture the students about the change or about, look, these kids, are you know, in Africa or whatever charity you're supporting, are worse off than you. They kind of come to that conclusion. So is that happening in with the primary school students making those sort of, you know, under like you know, drawing those own conclusions themselves?
1: Oh, totally. It does, and the younger the better, I think. See, our mindset, I'm a mindset coach for adults. We're, our mindset is formed when we're young and it's formed by repetition uh, of things from people who are significant in our lives, our parents and our community. And so if kids get involved early in philanthropy, then they're more likely to be philanthropic when they're older. I reckon it's easier to get a kid to give 10 cents out of a dollar That's going to be to get you or I to give 100,000 out of a million. I just yeah. reckon it's going to be easier to get 10 out of a dollar. So it's just a, it's just a way of understanding... Um, Life and making something habitual that I I have enough and I am lucky enough and I am fortunate and I do have a responsibility to help other people. So we have kids from primary school and what they do in our primary uh, leadership program, you know, we've got um, Narelle down in Sydney running a group there and a a group here in Brisbane. It's quite extraordinary what the kids do and what they think. And, you know, quite often I think we're in their way. If we just gave them the tools and got out of the way, they would do even more. Um, A quick example, we had kids from Serena. So... Um, after the last one of our campaigns was for the droughts last year, and we were using the Rotary Club of Coromal, we're uh, helping to deliver aid and, and vouchers and so forth out around Hilston in Western New South Wales. And we had kids from Serena, a little school up there with near two kids, writing letters to the farmers. So those kids had seen the images, and I argue those kids are victims as well. They're far from the drought, but they can see the images, and it was disturbing to them. So that very, I think the teachers are where we leverage, brilliant teacher, got the kids involved in a meaningful activity to engage with the situation. They raised a few dollars, it wasn't about the money, and they wrote a little letter. So the kid in year two writing, dear farmer, and he drew a picture of a tractor and so forth, I hope your cows are better. We've been thinking about you and we've raised some money for you. And beautiful little letters, you can imagine, your two kids would write and send it off. And we put it in with the rotary who delivered it for us out there. But what I reckon happens in that house is that little kid sees the next image of the drought on the TV and instead of being despair, the kid thinks, you know, Mum or Dad, I helped them. We've helped those farmers already. We've done some good for them. You know, mm. I them and we sent them some money along.
0: Yep. And I just
1: think it helps them be feeling empowered about the world. So that's a year two kid. A year yep. six child, completely different. A year 10, year 12 child, totally different. They can get yep. involved at different levels and they can run their own campaigns and you know, there's a boy in Sydney who we took around the country speaking at the halogen events. There's something for people to go to, for young leaders, Halogen Australia. They um, He was talking about a water filter program. Um, Winter Vincent's his name, if you can look him up. And he did Waves for Water and engages lots of schools, helping deliver clean, filtered water to places in Indonesia. He mm. a kid at age 11 and 12. was at $50 a pop getting these water filters made and delivered into country. And so he's actually ended up in, impacting something like 15,000 people in Indonesia from a school <laughs> in Sydney in Manly, um, you know, just because he was he was engaged, his parents supported him, he wanted to do it, and, and he got on about it. So that's what yeah. they can do. It was amazing. That's just a couple of more examples than I could share with you in a couple of hours of yeah. young philanthropists and what they're capable of doing. But the impact on those kids is significant they are better they definitely are happier you know i think more resilient young people with with a sense of purpose about themselves and an entrepreneurial flair that comes to the fore
0: yeah totally and it yeah i'm sitting here and i'm nodding away with with what you're saying and and it's funny because i would agree with all of that just you know even before i started working in the non-profit sector 15 years ago i was involved with it you know like I'd been a volunteer with a few different organizations and I had done fundraising you know even such things as the MS Readathon like as a kid and you know so I was quite active in in giving or philanthropy or whatever I was calling it uh, you know in in helping other people through the community but so I've always thought I think as an adult that getting kids involved in stuff is important and over my career, I have been invited from time to time to different schools to, you know, to talk about um, the type of work that I do or how, you know, for people to get involved in the community, thinking about careers. i spoke to, a, you know, a group of year 10s once about a career, you know, in the non-profit sector just to spark their interest, you know, potentially. And from my perspective, that was, you know, never an option. But I don't I don't think everyone has to work in the not-for-profit industry to make a difference. There's many, many ways we can all be involved in our community and make a difference. But I think what I've learnt over the years is that, like you say, I think young people learn, I mean, anyone learns through repetition and the younger you are you can soak up things a lot better, but your innate values and what your belief systems, that does come from being a child. And if you're from a family that's not – particularly community-minded or um, giving back for whatever reason, maybe there's no resources or or whatever it might be, then you're less likely to think about it. So, if schools aren't teaching these sorts of things, then it's generally not going to be on anyone's radar. So, you know, there's a program that operates out of Sydney called Kids in Philanthropy that sort of gets kids involved you know outside of their schools generally um in philanthropic endeavors they donate small amounts of money and the kids are involved in choosing who or where that money goes to um and i think it's really important um you know australia if you look at any of the stats over the last few years australia is a very giving and a very generous country i mean the bushfires that we saw earlier this year and the amount of money that was generated to support you know families and victims and firefighters and things like that has just you know in um in, you know inspired everybody but also confirmed that we are such a generous country so i think it is important you know and i know some schools now have their community social issues type of aspects to the curriculum but Again, I still probably never thought about it, I think, overtly as the benefit for the young people directly in terms of their own well-being by being involved in that, which I don't know why I've never made that connection myself because from my personal level – even when i donate or get involved you know on a volunteer basis or whatever i feel better about stuff so i don't know why i've never made that direct correlation myself but it's it's fascinating to have this conversation with you actually and and draw a really overt line between the links of supporting young people for this purpose rather than just making them good citizens of the world you know that is a good thing but if you're a good citizen of the world then you're probably healthier and happier and you know, feeling better about life because you are being proactive and productive in society.
1: Mm, totally. So, use the word "inreach." I made it up in 1999. I'd love to see it in the lexicon. I'd love to see it in dictionaries. But you, you, that feeling you described takes a few sentences for most people to say. You know, I got more out of it than I ever put in, and all those good feelings we get when we help somebody else. There was no one word, so yeah. I made the word "inreach" to describe the benefit one gets by being involved in outreach. And so, when you feel that, say, "I'm feeling inreach." That's what I've got. Yeah that really nice feeling I've helped someone else I'm not trading I'm not giving so that I get I'm giving because I want to give that's actual giving that's philanthropy
0: yeah and it's so true even when I you know I think I first took on my first like serious volunteer role as a mentor with big brothers big sisters when I was in my early 20s and um you know that was a big commitment was a good couple of hours every week you had to commit to for 12 months with a young person and i thought you know i was going to do this and i was going to make a big difference and all these amazing things were going to happen and it did but i was blown away by how much i personally got from the volunteering that that yeah, to a point right, that yeah,
1: that's what we're on about. That's why you know
0: like you know, yep yeah, when people started to talk to me about oh you're so that's so amazing that you're doing all this stuff and i'm like i would actually almost feel guilty because i'm like well uh, I'm not necessarily, like, I actually feel amazing about doing it. Like, it actually does so much more for me than I think I'm actually giving that it's not really a fair, a fair balance. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, a
1: good, just, you've just summed up. That's exactly why we exist. We know it's the case, but we don't have, it's hard to measure happiness. It's hard to yeah. measure hope. It's hard to measure those intangibles. But you know what? As I said about my philosophy of education, it's the most important thing. The absence of hope. There is no point. That's where Brendan was at. All the stuff we learn, all the stuff we know, does not help us. It's what make, what gives our life meaning and purpose. Is what it's all about. That delivers happiness, and that keeps us young, and that keeps us getting out of bed every day. In the absence of that, we think we're sort of stuck. And I, tell, yeah. I trust I coach a lot of people who are unpacking stuck from being young. Yeah. So I'm glad that I'm glad that distinctions come through for you because it's, it's yeah.
0: Yeah it's 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 amazing actually I'm quite I'm yeah I'm I'm very surprised as to how I'd never made that direct link before but it's it's fabulous. Um so as I said school aids about um, you know in obviously supporting the or improving mental health outcomes and wellbeing outcomes for young people by empowering them to get involved in philanthropy and you've worked with you know thousands of schools across the country to raise millions of dollars. Um you're really quite a small organisation though and this is really remarkable. So how have you been able to deliver such fabulous outcomes and engagement um, being such a small organisation?
1: What if I just said hard work for a start-up? You know, There's a lot, <laughs> lot of hard slog and I, people listening to this are going to be in your group, they're going to get. It's just, there is a lot of hard work because you've got something that drives you hard, like my London story, you have to have the idea, then you've got to get up and get on with it. So hard work's one. The other one, I think, in terms of our results, has been leverage. So take the glory from Sean. It's about the team that's come around, the people who've been attracted to the vision of school, who get what we're on about. And I'd start with the people who've made up our board over the years. We've had some incredibly talented and brilliant people who've come to the table and brought their talent and their expertise and their energy and even their money to help make this thing go. Then there's been a team, you know, variously we've had staff that we've paid and the dedicated team we had for a number of years is fantastic and they delivered a lot of the goods for us, you know, through that period and we've had partners. I mentioned the principals associations, primary and secondary that have been on board, Halogen Australia who do incredible work with youth leadership all over the place and group leadership. Um, the, The last two Governor Generals have been our patron and they're just two beautiful men and their wives who have been incredibly supportive and helpful for us to give us that leverage. Um, It's Time Foundation doing incredible stuff around the world but assisting us with, in myriad ways, you know, mm-hmm. out of Wollongong. Julie and, De- and Deb Harris who fund us and looked after us. They have done for year after year. They just believe in our vision and support us. And uh, Social Ventures Australia. Look, I could go on. There's been incredible organisations but the partners have helped us and without their support, my vision would still be a very small vision with very little imp- – still a big vision with little impact. Yeah. We've got volunteers all around Australia. And then we put some systems in place, and that's pretty critical too. To so, say, well, how do you save yourself time and energy by putting systems in? And, and did I mention hard work?
0: <laughs> Just once. So you've, got to, you've, got to, you've got to have a vision.
1: It's <laughs> got to get you out of bed, but you have to get you have to do the do on it. You know, all of us at the moment are honorary, and all of us work pretty hard at it.
0: Yeah,
1: it's time taken for it.
0: Yeah. So what I hear you saying, Sean, is what, you know, one of the tips that you gave earlier in this segment was around, you know, the first tip you sort of said was around empowering others to get involved. And you've just sort of listed all your various board members over the 20 years, all your partners. So it's the people that you're surrounding yourself with or that you've been fortunate enough to, to, you know, to come and surround themselves around you that has been able to make you um, as an organisation, have such fabulous engagement and outcomes because of those you've got around you. That's what I hear is your, um, that you're saying.
1: It's always the case. It's always mm. the case. Very early on I thought, what I want to have, i got this idea, shared it with others. They all loved it. The principals groups got on board immediately and then I thought, wow, to take this forward I need to have some help. So I, I envisaged a room, like a boardroom, and around the table were various skills, you know, accounting and legal and marketing and so forth, and I thought I need... Those people around the table, and I need to be the dumbest person in the room, and I think I accomplished that pretty quickly. And then with that talent, we were able to do things. So we've had, look, we've had some really great successes, and then we've had we've made some massive errors. You know, we had a branding error that took us off track for a couple of years. Extraordinary stuff that you learn. But mm. we're here, we're growing, and we're doing some really good things. And that whole notion of inreach is worth it for our kids. So, so I keep fighting the good fight, and people around yeah. my table who continue to sit around the table, who continue to give generously. They're still fighting a good fight because I think we can put this Goliath to bed with enough people and with enough support
0: yeah yeah that's that's exciting um so before you started the organization and then you came up with you know the idea of providing hope had uh, had you been a lot personally involved in community philanthropy giving like had you personally experienced this this idea of inreach that you talk about so that you knew that that was an answer to the problem of lack of hope and um and stuff in the students
1: i reckon you know the answer to that question because people get the <laughs> mindset from their significant others when they're young so I'm, my mum and dad came out from ireland in 1956 and worked up on the snowy mountain scheme and yeah. they absolutely they absolutely hammered into us the value of education and the value of contribution and my mum in particular but dad was always working but mum in particular on the hospital auxiliary meals on wheels St. Vincent yeah. in the pool, church school tuck shops you know it's used, always giving to other people, always doing, and I saw that. And then in my own life, yeah, I end up in the Scouts. Look, what a great organisation that was for me, um, you know, doing Bob a job. And then the Duke of Edinburgh scheme later on when I was older, um, St Vincent de Paul. Um, as a young principal, I volunteered in the, in the rural fire brigade out in the bush and, we, you know, i see I'd get what that's all about. Then I spent 10 years as, a, as a, um, a leader in the State Emergency Services doing road rescue and flood rescue and search and rescue and there's some incredible stories there that are too long for today as well. Mm-hmm. and then as i grew and understand you know what it actually means for me and i, I read the things like say, seven the seven habits of highly effective people by um by covey you know he yeah. talks about the notion of interdependence you know initially yeah. in life you're dependent and um and anyway you get to the one place where you, you realize that we're all connected and that we are interdependent we depend you depend on me and i depend on you even yeah, if we don't so probably the coronavirus is showing us how very connected we actually are yeah but anyway the um you know, I think we've all got parts to play in our community to make the community work. And therefore, I, as a as a grown up, I've got a I've got a role to play, and I've got to do my bit. And I need you to do your bit, and I need accountants and lawyers and government and other people to do their bit, and we can have this thing called humanity making a difference in the place. But we've all got a bit to play, and absolutely, I got it from my parents when I was younger, and it's I hope i I hope I'm passing it on to my own kids.
0: Yeah, I I have a little doubt that you would not be (laughs) passing that on to your own children and and many others, obviously, around the country. Um, So, just thinking a little bit uh, more broadly about the school aid organisation, I understand just over a year ago you launched Tucker, which is a for purpose business, uh, which I think you describe as a remote controlled tuck shop that delivers fresh and healthy food to schools. So in addition to obviously improve nutrition and well-being of those children, their business model supports local businesses and provides profits back to the schools um, and a little bit back to school aid, the non-profit as well. I, When I was reading about this, I was fascinated by it um, because it seems like it's a win-win-win-win, like a four-way win outcome. um for the students being healthier, the, you know, the local businesses, the schools and then school aid, um, you know, uh, getting some support from it as well. How did you come up with this concept and how has it been received thus far in the school communities and what success is it having?
1: Yeah, so Tucker, is tu Look, as a school principal, I was always a bit of a serial entrepreneur, but I could see that. Um, running running school canteens, it's a food service business inside a school when school leaders are busy enough and it's harder to get volunteers these days, you know, there's compliance issues around delivery of food and, and then there's the whole obesity problem in Australia that's completely out of control. And so I looked for and I spoke with some of the people on our board about, you know, was there a way for us to find a for-profit business uh, that might deliver Funding support for our not-for-profit, so we didn't have to keep knocking on doors to get funding and support for school aid. And so the idea came up as a possible way, you know, delivering food to schools. And the initial model we had was a good one, and it brought to me a great guy who's a funding partner now and a, and a business partner, Aaron Zamical. But it wasn't it wasn't scalable, and the model just couldn't work. There's no way we could make this thing work. And so Aaron and I have reinvented it completely, and it's now a tech platform, and it's about crowdsourcing meals, basically for any group that needs regular meals, you know, like a school or an after-school or before school or any group that needs multiple meals at a single time. So we're not actually in the food business, we're a tech play and it's a technology startup, and it's going quite well. We've got a number of schools involved already, we've learnt a lot, we're a little bit over a year old and we've got a very exciting trial starting with, um, in a particular market next week actually and we think that'll go rather well. So... A portion of the profits will go to fund school aid. That's one of our chief tenants upon which the thing was built, and that's a healthy mind play, and then we'd like to be part of the solution for obesity, so that's a healthy body play, and it just it all sits in quite tightly, quite nicely together. And as you say, we're employing people locally. Um, we're taking a major brick out of the backpack of some school leaders. With a, you know, why are we running a, school, a food service business when our core business is education? Yeah, so that's, you know, they can outsource that to Tucker and we can help deliver that for them and deliver a profit for them. We just think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah,
0: it makes an enormous amount of sense, really. Um, and it's kind of funny. Sometimes, you know, you hear about these new ideas or new business models and you kind of just sort of go, wow, how, how have we taken so long, you know, to think of this sort of idea? But um, it makes so much sense for all of the reasons that you talked about, you know, I know schools are getting, you know, like when I was a kid, my mum volunteered in our, you know, canteen at the school and um, but that sort of stuff, you know, families or parents, you know, rarely volunteer in canteens. Now a lot of them are actually outsourced to someone else to run as a business, which I, I kind of, I don't have a problem with that necessarily. It's just, it's quite a different space that it's yeah. all in now. So, but, um, and then to be able to use tech, like a tech platform is what you're saying essentially Tucker is, um, is, a, is like switched it on its head, you know, flipped it on its head really completely again because it's not, it's not about a physical shop or it's not about the actual food. It's about a platform so that people can create what they, you know, what they need in terms of their um, outsourcing their food or catering requirements as it may be.
1: Totally doable, and it's all online. And it's convenient, and the parents work with us. And we've got, we've even come up with a subscription model. Can you believe that? So parents can subscribe, and they can say, "We want to buy. Our child likes these three or four certain things off the menu. We're going to set and forget this. We're going to choose for the whole term. Just have just rotate those three meals around, and we're click click click, and it's done. So for busy yeah, exactly. parents, it's an absolute boon for the school. like yeah. they, they can't lose if they sell. If they buy a salad sandwich, then it's going to be a profit for the school. They don't have to worry about having a canteen. They don't have to worry about all the capital expense. They don't have to worry about all the stuff that goes with volunteering, with paying a convener, like all those problems are taken away. And the funding's all online. It's all through credit card. And it's delivered fresh from a licensed food vendor, possibly a parent of the school even, or from the childcare, you know, who's locally doing it tough and they've got capacity in their kitchen to prepare meals in the morning before the lunch run. Like it's all upside as far as we can see, and the, the early yeah. indications have been fabulous. So, And we can scale it. We can start in Perth tomorrow. No problem at all.
0: Yeah, that's fabulous. Well done, well done. Um, last year um, you received an Order of Australia medal, so congrats, that's a huge congratulations. That's a that's a really um, big honour. And to be honest, the list that you sort of just went off about um, in terms of what you've done since being a child, like the influence you had from your family, your parents around being involved and engaged with the local community and all the various things you've done from being involved in the Duke of Edinburgh and the Scouts and, you know, SES and the local fire brigade and those sorts of things. Obviously, you have been living an incredible life of service to the community, which is what your Order of Australia medal was so so from a personal level I I imagine this meant a huge amount to you can you talk talk to us a little bit about about that process for you
1: well it's, it's sort of less of a process and more of a, a revelation that just blows you apart when you, you you become aware that you've been nominated and you know would you like to accept it comes as an email from government house and hmm. so for me it was quite a moving okay I could hardly speak in fact it brought me to tears and I don't tear up that often but you know, mm. I, I got an email as I rolled up. It said, this is, you've been honoured. You've been honoured this way if you wish to go ahead with it. And for me, it was incredibly affirming. You know, you can't expect it. You can't buy it. You can't look, you can't expect it in any way, shape or form. But, um, I, yeah, for me, it was, it was just amazing. It was quite extraordinary. It was terribly affirming of what I've done and tried to do in life. And it actually backed up all the things I try to teach our kids, that if you're giving, you do receive. But you yeah. can't expect to receive. You just give because it's the right thing to do. And the vacuum you create will be be filled with similar sort of energy. And I also hope that while it's been great for me, I think, reflected through that, I hope family, friends, board members, team members, volunteers, and others would say, you know what, I was a part of that too. We've done all those things without us. And I do hope, and I certainly said, you know, it's a team sport. I'm lucky to get this uh, this terrific honour, but gee, I couldn't have done it without other people. So yeah, I'm grateful, grateful beyond belief for that. And the other really nice thing about it, Bianca, is that um, the credibility of having an OAM after your name is high in our country. People really value the thing. So I think that will open more doors for us and for me that might help make Goliath just that little bit smaller. Do you know? I think
0: that
1: yeah. the ability that comes with it and with the vice regal support of our Governor-General and so forth might help us in the battle against youth and youth, depression, anxiety and suicide.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, congratulations um, once once more. Just um, a last question, and I I feel like maybe we've touched on this a little bit, but just in what is it that, you know, you were you so very busy, which most good people in the world that are doing good things are busy. <laughs> uh, like you said, it's hard work, hard work, hard work. So you're busy with your charitable work, with school aid, you run your own Um, coaching and um, consulting work you know you're doing a startup as well you've got so much happening what motivates you to keep going um, and do what you do every day good question
1: I think it's my London you know I've got I've got dreams and visions for me and for my family and for my community and they, they they run deep it's just stuff that's come after many years of just living on the planet I've also developed a great sense of gratitude about where I fit in the world and just how lucky I am to be where I am with what I've got in my life and who I've got in my life. And I'm aware of that. I think a lot of people aren't aware of just how well off they are and that sort of keeps them a bit stuck. I've also got beliefs, do you know? So I happen to be Christian, but it's I don't beat the drum on that anyway. In fact I wasn't for a long while. After a after a particular situation I was quite cranky with the whole notion of anything to do with church for a very long time. But I know that hope is critical, absolutely critical for a happy life. And I think in the absence of it you're sort of stuck and nothing much will happen. And I've got one of my coaches, I believe in I'm a coach and I have coaches, and I believe in no one successful gets on in this life without a coach or three. One of them, Bob Proctor, who's now 86, lives in Canada, and I've trained with him personally, um, he comes across and he says, which stuck with me, he said, I think that we've been made in the image and likeness of the creator, if you believe that story. Therefore, our role is to be creative. You know, that's what we've been made in the image and likeness. Our task is to be creative. Yeah. So we're not static. Like no one can stay still. When I coach business executives, I say you can't stay still. You can't. There's no status quo. You're either creating or disintegrating but there is no staying still. Um, change is inevitable. Personal growth is a choice. And so creating gives meaning and purpose, I reckon, and I think it's a life force as you create things taking you towards your London, towards your vision, towards your thing. That create, it causes you to have so much energy for life. That's the stuff I coach on, you know. Mm. Um, it just It's what drives you. I, I guess I, if I was to finish that thought, it's that it goes back to Brendan and kidding you 5 again, you know, um, without no hope there is no point. So you've got to say, what am I hoping for? What do I want to do, be and have from this journey called life? And I'm going to go through once and, you know, we get so stuck with our own self-image and our own self-importance and we get stuck in the mire when, in fact, we really got to just take the handbrake off, really dream up what it is that we want to have as our London and get on and get after it Mm. and just see if we can create. And if if we keep on creating, we'll keep younger, I think, for longer. And then you know, so say so you live and then you die. Well, hopefully we leave a legacy, have we have done some good? But Absolutely. I can tell you, most people bounce through this life, and and be lucky if their great-grandkids know their name. And yet, yeah. in their, their present time, they say they're all worried about their thing and their place and what the, who they are. And you've got to go back to your history and find a few of the big hitters. As I said, I'm Christian. There's one bloke who walked around here two thousand years ago, started with a group of twelve, and still millions of people follow the story. They still believe mm-hmm. the thing. You know, that that's what I'd call an incredible life of service and understanding something and making a difference and a contribution. Most of yeah. the rest of us will we barely make a ripple if we, you know, if we stay careful as we are. So what gets me out of bed is to make a difference and to be someone and to use the gift I've got this, on this trip through.
0: Yeah, thank you so much and I do think, um, Sean, from where I sit, you're making a huge difference in the world um, through the work, obviously, that you're doing with school aid and and so many other things. It's been remarkable to speak with you this morning. I... um, I feel like you've made a difference in what I do on a day-to-day basis just from this conversation and I did not expect that outcome from the start of this uh, interview so thank you so much and we really do appreciate it and thanks for all that you do in the community. You're
1: thanks Bianca, it's been lovely speaking with you.